he looks like he should be on Stranger Things. Don't take it no personal, man. It's awesome. It's a good thing. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, guys, welcome back. I have Evan Pycon back on the show. Now, if you haven't checked out any of uh, past episodes, Evan's been on twice already, and he's changed my whole, um, changed my mind pretty much on energy system training and how to actually formulate it for my fighters and turn my world around in a sense, man. So if you can just quickly give them a background of who you are and what you have now and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, with totally. It. So I'll kind of start from right now and work backwards. So I'm the co-founder and chief physiologist for a tech company called Knox. Uh, we make wearables, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit on this podcast. Prior to that, I started a lab called Emergent Performance Lab. I did uh, physiology and sports tech consulting with military special forces, uh, professional sports teams, professional endurance athletes, kind of running the gamut of different types of sports. And before that, I worked for a company called Training Think Tank, where we worked with a lot of the top CrossFit Games competitors, again, uh, diving into the nuances of their physiology, figuring out how to enhance their training, reduce injuries. So little bit of all that yep. and got an influx of fighters now because i've been bigging this man up for quite some time so if you haven't checked him out make sure you go check out all of his stuff but now you have something new to bring to the table and, and i want to dive deep now it, it's called and correct me if i'm wrong no primer is that that's what it's called yeah, so the uh the science primers the no primer the company is called knox knox okay got it got it so what, how did this come about? Why did you decide to go this route and, um, and take it you know, to where you want to take it? Yeah, totally. So I, I really got into this in kind of a strange way. So in addition to the sports performance and sports science that I've been doing for years, I also am involved in medical science. I did my master's degree in medical physiology and pharmacology. And a few years ago, I was really looking to do more things in the medical space. And one of the molecules I was really interested in was nitric oxide. Uh, had done a lot of research on it and never really did anything with it in particular. And at some point I started working with a group of scientists and engineers and kind of entrepreneurs. And we realized that we can measure nitric oxide. It's the first time it's ever been measured non-invasively. And from someone from a sports performance background, that seemed really interesting to me because nitric oxide has all these implications for tissue recovery, enhancing endurance, enhancing strength. But the problem is, is if you can't measure it, you can't figure out how to manage it or manipulate it. So for a few years now, we've really been diving into the science and understanding how these measurements work. And we've actually now developed the first and only non-invasive measurement of nitric oxide in the blood. So that's kind of the... <laughs> the past two years in a 30 second spiel yeah do, do me a favor and explain to the listeners what nitric oxide is and how it's good for performance yeah of course so nitric oxide is an interesting molecule because a lot of people have heard of it but a lot of what we know about it is actually not completely accurate so i'll start with a little bit of a simpler perspective we all know what the respiratory system does you breathe in oxygen you breathe out carbon dioxide every single person listening to this knows that but that's the two gas respiratory cycle that we've all been taught is actually incomplete. There's a third gas that was totally missed until the nineties. That yep. third gas is nitric oxide. Yep. Now that gas, I call it ordinary nitric oxide because what we're really interested in is a 
active form of nitric oxide with a really long, complicated name that I'll just say once and we'll move on and just call it active NO. It's called S-nitrosohemoglobin or snow hemoglobin. We just call that active NO. We'll just use that term. Okay. So ordinary nitric oxide is produced by the endothelial cells and people take NO explode and beetroot and all these different supplements to try and boost NO. Mm -hmm. But that form of NO isn't responsible for oxygenating tissues. What it does is it lowers blood pressure. So that nitric oxide, it's released as a gas from the endothelial cells and it opens up the arteries and arterioles and it allows more blood to flow, lowers blood pressure, all these great things. Now, what happens is the red blood cell comes by and it sucks up that nitric oxide gas from the blood. That nitric oxide gas only exists for fractions of a second. And that nitric oxide gas binds to the iron in the hemoglobin molecule in the red blood cell. Now, the red blood cell, eventually it releases its oxygen, it picks up carbon dioxide. So now that red blood cell is going all the way back to the heart and the lungs, and it's deoxygenated. So it has CO2 attached to it, and it has an ordinary nitric oxide. Now, when it goes to the lungs, and it releases the carbon dioxide, and we expel the CO2, then we breathe in, and the oxygen binds to the hemoglobin, and that nitric oxide comes off, and it attaches to a different site on the hemoglobin. And when it attaches to a different site, it transforms into a new molecule called active nitric oxide for short. Mm -hmm. What's really cool about this molecule is now that red blood cell is loaded with oxygen and it's loaded with active NO and it goes around the circulation and it acts like a little computer. It senses how much oxygen is in its surrounding environment. Okay. So now if you're exercising really hard and your muscle is hypoxic, that red blood cell is going to sense that and it's going to release the oxygen and active NO. The oxygen is taken up for energy production, but that active NO signals for the micro vessels and the muscle to dilate and it increases blood flow and oxygen delivery to that muscle. Now, when you stop exercising, the red blood cells sense that and they stop releasing active NO and you don't increase blood flow. What's really interesting though, is in addition to that active nitric oxide, mm -hmm. uh, signaling for the blood vessels to widen, increasing oxygen delivery. If you don't have that, you actually cannot release oxygen in the tissue. So this is the really bizarre part. Yeah. This is why people with low active nitric oxide, they end up with cardiovascular disease and neurodegenerative diseases because wow. this active form of nitric oxide stays in the blood. It goes through the systemic circulation, crosses the blood-brain barrier, and increases blood flow to the brain. Mm. So one of the things that we've learned is people who don't have active nitric oxide, they've impaired cardiovascular health, impaired neurological health. Yeah. impaired muscle recovery, impaired endurance. So this molecule is really fundamental to all of life. Mm -hmm. So what are you doing to test for this? Yeah. So we have a small wearable device. It's, if I stick my thumb out, it's literally about the size of my thumb, like a little USB stick. Mm -hmm. And what this device does is it measures active nitric oxide in the working muscles in live time. So you pop the device on the muscle, it has a strap that you could attach and you wear it. And during exercise, it's going to measure your nitric oxide levels. So generally, as you're exercising and working hard, you're going to see more active nitric oxide being released. You stop exercising, you'll see that release go down. We also measure muscle oxygenation, which I know you've used quite a bit in the past. We measure uh, oxygen consumption. So we have a measurement called UO2 that you can kind of think of it like VO2, but it's taken in the local muscle. So it's local muscle oxygen consumption. And then we have things like skin temperature, so we can do thermography. So it's a little 
lab jam-packed into a device. That's crazy. What, well, what made you want to design this primarily? Yeah, so it really started with wanting to uh, better treat certain disease conditions. So one of the things that we know is if you have low active nitric oxide, particularly uh, seniors as people are getting older, that's going to cause so many different health conditions. One of the things that we know, there's actually a lot of research on this, the more active nitric oxide you have, the lower your risk of cardiovascular disease, the lower your risk of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And what they know so far is that the only known way to increase our body's supply of active nitric oxide is through exercise. It's not through taking a supplement or a pill. But the problem is, is that the form of exercise, intensity, duration that best increases active nitric oxide is different for everyone. Mm. So up until this point, scientists never really had a good way of saying, hey, for you, this is how you should exercise to increase your risk of cardiovascular disease. So we're really thinking more in terms of those applications when we were developing this technology of how do we help people exercise to improve their health? Yeah. And then all of the different sport applications of that came after, because obviously that's my background. So yeah. selfishly, I want to try and apply it there. Always. We're always trying to, we're always trying to performance shit out of things, you know? Exactly. <laughs> no, that's cool, man. So I guess, I guess my, my question would be, so supplements like L-citrulline and beetroot juice, like is that a beetroot extract, is that good to take or is that something that we really don't need? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it comes down to like a cost benefit. Mm -hmm. So taking things like L-citrulline or taking uh, nitrous ethyl rich beetroot, beetroot, they do increase plasma nitrate levels, which in some way may increase uh, how much ordinary nitric oxide we could produce. And that may then increase our ability to make active nitric oxide. But that pathway, it's not fully fleshed out. So we don't really know how much of an impact that makes. So what I would say is it can't hurt to take those things, but for every person, they need to do a risk benefit. It's not cheap to take high doses of beetroot. There may be some, you know, things like that to consider for the individual. Yeah. I mean, I've been drinking beetroot juice for a while. Um, I don't know if I see a direct benefit from it, you know, but I do feel, I mean, it's, it's, it's healthy for you. So I don't think it'd be a, a, yeah. a detriment, right? But you're saying that if we did some type of cardiovascular training or some type of, what, type, what is the best type of training to increase this? Yeah, so this is where it's really interesting because it is actually quite different for different individuals. So for myself, I found that uh, shorter high intensity workouts give me huge increases of active NO. And I don't really get a ton from longer steady state activity, but I've seen other people's data and they tend to benefit more from that type of training. So I think this actually ties in pretty well to some of the ideas that we chatted about on the first time I was um, on your podcast about individuals who are utilization limited versus respiratory limited. Yeah. I actually think that someone's bioenergetic limiter for increasing their VO2 mm -hmm. does, uh, it is associated with the type of training that will best increase their active nitric oxide levels to some degree. But even within that, there's things like duration and like really specific intensity that we need to think about. Because one of the things that I've seen for myself is at some point I cross a threshold during exercise, we're doing more total work sets 
I actually start producing less and less active NO. And what that tells me is I really reach a threshold where, yeah, maybe doing an extra two or three sets, it will benefit me, but the benefit is starting to shrink really fast. And I'm probably better off just shutting it down that day and doing something else. Makes sense. So we're looking towards still training the limiters, which will definitely enhance NO and have that active NO be uh, formulated and worked on and increased over time, correct? Yeah. Now with the compensators, however, like we talked about this, you guys can go back on that. If somebody needed to train their compensators, is that a, is that a bad thing in that perspective? Are they gonna are they gonna negatively affect their active NO that way? Yes. Yeah, so this is where we always have to think about like what is the ultimate goal? Because if you're a fighter and you need to perform, yeah, we need to train your compensators. Because in a fight, you're not gonna say like, hey, I'm really gassed right now. Could you stop trying to punch me and let's take a little break? No, that's never gonna happen. So yeah, you need to train all of your compensators. Have good plan A, B, C, D. So I think in that situation, definitely train the compensators. But for the person who maybe they don't care about their performance at all. They're really just trying to live a long and healthy life. Maybe the training, the compensators isn't as necessary because in the process of training limiters, they will train those to some degree. Mm -hmm. Something on the limiter note though, is I think there's another limiter that um, actually, I don't think I've ever talked about this on a podcast or really anywhere before because it's something kind of fresh in my mind so make, make make me more confused let's 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 do this no, no, no. I, it's not going to make it more confusing I swear. Kidding. in the past we've talked about so someone's a limiter it's essentially the rate limiting factor for uh increasing their vo2 so we could think of vo2 it's the integrated capacity of the uh respiratory cardiovascular and muscular system to uptake o2 transport oxygen and then utilize oxygen in the muscle so when we're talking about limiters, we're essentially saying, are you limited by your ability to uptake O2, respiratory, deliver it to the muscles, cardiovascular, and then uh, could you utilize it in the muscles? So utilization limitation. I think there's a fourth limiter. I actually, I now, when I think of a cardiovascular delivery limitation, I kind of think of that as two different limiters now. So I think is the cardiac output the problem, i.e. the maximal pumping capacity of the heart, or is the vasculature the problem, i.e. could you even dilate your blood vessels? Do you have healthy vasculature? And the reason why I think this is so important is when you look at a lot of the literature, they say VO2 or uh, cardiac output is one of the primary determinants of VO2 max or sports performance. And I actually don't believe that that's the case. And the reason that I say that is cardiac output, how much your heart could pump, isn't what regulates blood flow at the micro vessel level in the tissues. It's how much you could dilate your blood vessels. And when I say this, so there's a formula that determines blood flow to the tissue and it has the radius of your blood vessel to the fourth power in it. So what that means is every little tiny change in the diameter of your blood vessel, you get a humongous change in blood flow. So it doesn't matter how high you could get your cardiac output. If you can't dilate your blood vessels, it doesn't matter. You're not going to get the O2 there anyway. So I think cardiac output is actually a secondary component. It's only useful if you could dilate. So at some point, if you dilate your blood vessels so much, you're going to lower your blood pressure and you're going to black out and probably die. Your brain's not going to let you do that. 
So the cardiac output is important because you want to improve your ability to dilate and then improve how much your heart could pump to maintain your blood pressure. So I think of those as two slightly different things now. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to have one over the other primarily. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like you want to improve your ability to dilate and generate your active NO, and then your cardiac output needs to be high enough to support that. How, so how are we testing for that? How can we test for that if possible? Yes. Yeah, so this is where one of the things that we could do now that we can measure the active NO is there are people who they look like they have delivery limitations, so to speak. So they'll get really low oxygen levels in the muscle. And some of those individuals will get crazy high active NO levels. So they're dilating the hell out of their vessels and they're utilizing a lot. And at that point, I start to think it's probably a respiratory issue. But there are other individuals who get O2 pretty low, but they have a more modest increase in active NO. And when we don't see signs of a respiratory issue, they're not breathing heavy, they don't have any changes in peripheral oxygen, I start to think, well, their brain's not letting them dilate. So they may be producing some active NO, but the brain's not letting them dilate fully for a reason. It's probably because their cardiac output can't actually support that level of dilation. And for those people, that's where you're wanting to hammer the classic like cardiac output intervals and VO2 intervals and things like that. That is interesting because I was going to tell you that we, we've seen a lot of fighters that we thought were respiratory limited, but their breathing wasn't like inhibited by any means. Like they, they looked like they were fine. But when we read the blood flow trends, it was just showing that, which yeah. I got confused. I was like, what? All right, what do we do here? So then I would just go and do a respiratory limitation protocol, you know, but, you know, now that. You're, t you're saying this, it makes a lot of sense. And a lot of those guys were, were those guys that like um, were explosive and they had repeatability. And, uh, and I was like, maybe they're delivery limited. I just couldn't find out. But this makes a lot more sense now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. And that's where I think a lot of these guys that are really explosive, like they're very good utilizers in the muscle. So then we always need to think too, well, could they dilate? And if they could dilate, could their heart pump enough to actually allow them to do that? And typically those are the guys that imagine they probably get pretty pumped up. We've also seen some weird things, or at least in the literature in COVID, uh, some athletes get some like microvascular inflammation and that might impact their ability to dilate, but that's starting to get a little bit speculative there. We don't really have the data to dig into that. So what are you looking for um, as far as markers for having inadequate uh, active nitric oxide, and then also what, what, what are the testing procedures that you're running? Yeah, so we could do a lot of the classic like performance tests, like a ramp incremental exercise test like you would to try and find someone's uh, VO2. But a lot of it, I think, is really just from the daily, I call it like embedded testing. So instead of thinking of a traditional, I'm going to put you through X, Y, or Z test, it's pop the device on and just go and do your normal exercise for a week or two. And let's just collect the data. One of the things that I found kind of neat about what we're doing is we're automating a lot of this data analysis. So we also have a performance platform that pulls the data in from the mobile phone and it charts everything for individuals and for um, like sports teams or military, we could use AI to automate the analysis. So we could see after someone's training and say, hey, they're probably limited by this system. And you know what, for this person, for their fitness level and age and sex, their active NO is kind of low. Maybe we should do something about that. That's something that over time will need a lot more people's data to really understand what these norms are. 
But once we start collecting that, we'll be able to say, hey, this person for their fitness level, their age, sex, height, weight, that's something they should look into more. Maybe this type of training will be most beneficial for them. So a lot of it's going to be an ongoing data collection process. Mm-hmm. And how many, how many athletes could you say you ran through this testing? Or up there. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's more than I could count in my it's, head right now. Good. But Yeah, that's I mean, good. It, we always want more, you know, I mean. Well, we know I'm going to put some fighters through this. So hell yeah, that's what we're going to do. I, I definitely want to get my hands on one. Um, so this is now another thing is that with tech and a lot of my fighters and coaches that I coach and mentor, they're not tech savvy, right? A lot of them. And let's say, for instance, I have a fighter that's, you know, doesn't train with me in-house, right? They're, they're in another country, they're in another state. How can they use this? Is it user-friendly enough to where they can do it on their own and then I can extrapolate the data? Like, how, how well can we do this? Yeah, so this is where um, one of the benefits is originally, like I said, we were designing this for more health and wellness applications. So we're trying to make the app easy enough that a senior could use it. That's our goal. We want you to be able to give this to a 75-year-old and have them put the device on, do workouts, and take a measurement. So if, if you can we, do that, that that means anybody yeah. can use it at this point with the technology. We're still working on that, but if we could pull that off, then I, I don't think it's going to be an issue for anyone. And what we've done that makes it pretty seamless is if you have an athlete, so say, uh, I would love to get you set up with one of these once we, we could talk about that offline. So you have your team rosters, so maybe you have a fighter in another country or another state, and they're collecting data with their device on their mobile phone, that data will automatically be in your portal as soon as they finish their workout. So they don't need to send you anything or know how to transport CSV files or any of that. It should be low friction and easy for anyone to do. That's awesome, man. And and so you can use this, and now my wheels are spinning because I can use this while they're sparring, while they're grappling, doing their actual skills training, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So... We, we do offer guided workouts that people could put the device on. It will take them through a guided workout of, okay, you're going to bike for this long and do this to your intensity, dot, 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 et cetera. But you could also just put it on and go on free mode, do whatever you want. We don't care what you're doing. We'll just collect the data for you and chart it for you afterwards. Or we do chart it in live time as well. So if they had their phone with them, their coach could see what's going on. Gotcha. And is there any extra testing that you would like to have, like VO2 max, lactic threshold, anything like that from a baseline perspective just to have, or is it is not needed? Yeah, I mean, to me, if we're really trying to go, go after the highest level of performance, more data is always better if it's not a pain to get. But one of the things that we tried to do is make this robust enough piece of technology that you're not going to feel like you're really missing anything. So we have built in other measurements. Like we do record muscle oxygenation. One of the cool things, we actually record it much faster than any device that's on the market right now. So if you put on a guy and he's punching, you could actually see the oxygen consumption and recovery with each individual punch, which is kind of sweet. And we also have a oxygen consumption measurement that's really strongly correlated with VO2. So if you had someone wearing a mask measuring their VO2, if VO2 is going up, the measurement that we call UO2 is going up right with it. VO2 goes down, it goes down with it. So we've tried to make some of those other technologies a little bit redundant. So again, if they have a metabolic analyzer, awesome. I love to get more data, but if someone doesn't have it, they're not going to be at a loss. Yeah. 
now, like, you know, I'm thinking about maximizing time. You know how we are. Like, we have very little time, a, a lot of time, especially guys coming from other states and countries coming in for camps. What if I wanted to measure force production with, let's say, the, the same measurements that for nitric oxide and we're looking at utilization and we're finding a correlation between utilization and actual force production on their punching power. Is that something that we could, yeah. we could do? Yeah, you could definitely do that. And one of the things that I think you could also do is, okay, let's say you find their max punching power and you correlate that with oxygen utilization. Mm -hmm. How many times could they punch at a high percentage of that max power? And I think that's going to be correlated to the NO. Mm -hmm. If you can't generate active NO, it's not going to be sustainable because that is literally the thing controlling blood flow at the micro vessel level so i think there's some interesting data like that that you could collect as well real quick explain to them about blood flow and why it's important for energy production mm -hmm. yeah so the shortest simplest way to think about it is no blood flow no oxygen so i think of it as uh kind of like a hose do you want a garden hose spring water or do you want a fire hose do you want a fire hose well that's how we think about it as well. If your blood vessel is really small and clamped, you're not getting a lot of flow and not a lot of oxygen is getting to the muscle. If you dilate your blood vessel with active NO, you're getting a lot of blood flow and oxygen delivery. And this gets into a whole can of worms of, well, what if I'm only punching once? Isn't that anaerobic? No, it's not. Everything uses oxygen. The more yeah. oxygen you could use, the better. Yeah. That was one thing that like when we looked at the time frames. that threw me. And it, it makes a, a lot more sense now because like, all right, listen, guys, if... if if you're not aerobic, if you're not breathing, if you don't have oxygen, you're, you're pretty much dead. So we have to make sure that we, we understand that, right? But now I'm looking at it because for my guys, my fighters, you need to have the ability to punch hard repeatedly, whether it be a punch, yeah. a kick, a takedown, whatever. Anything with high intensity and, and high energy output, you need to be able to repeat that for a long duration of time. And long duration meaning either three to five minutes, but that's pretty long when you're doing this and you have anxiety and all these other things yeah. and you're getting punched and kicked in the face and all that. That plays a big role too. We can get into that a little bit because that, that has to do with the psychology of training, right? Where, you know, I wanna see, I wanna measure, from a physiological standpoint, I wanna measure you know, how well they're able to utilize the liver, and then if they have active nitric oxide where they're able to vasodilate and get the blood flow appropriately. But then you gotta think about a lot of the new guys that are coming into the game, and they make that transition from you know, a lower level to the UFC, right, or Bellator, or big, you know, another big promotion, yeah. There's a level of anxiety that comes into play there, right? And so cortisol is increased, right? Stress levels, and then from there, sporadic breathing. That can play a pivotal role in blood flow and everything else, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And you're mentioning a lot of really important things. So a lot of times, people like me try and reduce performance to just physiology. You get the physiology better and you win. That's not how things work. So one of the things that I've been talking to a lot of coaches about this technology is it's really meant to be a way to enhance the coach. If you go and watch a UFC fight, you're going to see a thousand things that I'm not going to see. So you're probably like, I might watch one of your fighters and I'm like, man, that was insane. That was awesome. And you're like, really? Because there's a dozen things I saw every 30 seconds that that guy needs to change. And I'm like, what are, you, what are you talking about? So the way that I explain this tech is it's really a way to 
like enhance a coach. So you could watch one of your fighters and you're going to see their mechanics and you're going to see their breathing patterns. You're going to know their psychological state. This is just giving you another lens to look at them and say, well, now I see their blood flow. Now I see their oxygen. I know everything in between all these different pieces. You can make really informed decisions with it. I mean, you're covering all bases. That's the main thing, you know, and as, and as a performance coach, we come to guys, like we go to guys like you, sports scientists, and, and you have a coaching, like you're a coach too as well. You program and, yeah, and, yeah, you, work work, and you work with athletes. So that helps, right? You're not just an academic. You're in the field. You're, you're a practitioner. But I, I go to guys like you so that I can understand it from a deeper perspective, you know, where I need to be able to be a generalist and all these things. But when I'm like, I need to learn about energy system training, I'm going to come to Evan, right? I'm going to go to you to find out exactly what I need to do. And so for that, I think that every coach that is a practitioner that is looking to enhance the quality of their athletes, they need to find that person like yourself, if not you, because I always just say you because it's easier. Um, yeah. And I'm not going to lie, you, you, you've definitely changed uh, my mindset when it comes down to training. So if you guys are listening, make sure you check this man out. Um, he looks like he should be on Stranger Things. He's a good guy, I promise. <laughs> Don't take it on personal, man. That's awesome. It's a good thing. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, I'm hoping everybody laughed at that. Come on, man. My, my guy's got his headphones on, so he should have laughed. But he's, he's yeah. yeah, there he goes. He laughed a little bit. He's being a professional. Being a professional, yeah, whatever. We're not professional around here. I'm a strength guy. What do you expect? Um, so real quick, though, um, where can they find this device? How can they get it? And does it have any information and education that's built in so that it can help them out? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, um, I mean, just for a really basic info, we're on all the social media platforms. So the company's N-N-O-X-X and then underscore I-N-C. Um, but you could find us at uh, Knox.com. Again, it's N-N-O-X-X.com. Uh, we're actually revamping the website right now. So I'd imagine by the time this goes live, the whole website's probably to be totally different. So I'm not going to say what's on there right now. Um, but yeah, there's uh, early access. So if people are interested in getting this, they could get front of the line for when the devices are released to the public. Um, we'll talk about talk about that offline a little bit as well, because I'd love to get you one early. And uh, there's information on there, yeah, about the science of NO, um, the science of active NO. And if anyone is ever interested in learning more about that, I mean, I'm easy enough to find on the internet and I'm happy to answer questions. Okay. Last thing, because you know people are crazy about supplements. Is there anything that we could take that you think would be beneficial, not just from an NO perspective, but just from a performance enhancement perspective? Let's say for somebody, let's say for fighters, because most of my guys are, are fighters or fight coaches, and also tactical, right? We have tactical population. I work a lot now with SWAT guys and military. What are some of the things that we can utilize there? So, I mean, again, there's so many different things. Like, I always go back to the classics first of, like, caffeine creatine some of these things that everyone knows but i mean they they do have a lot of literature on them uh depending on the specific goals or nootropics that people could take things like n-acetylcysteine all these different things for certain applications in terms of no boosting supplements one of the things that i'm actually interested in learning a lot more about is what are the effects of these supplements because there's never been a way to measure active no in the blood non-invasively before we develop this. So we don't really know what happens when people take these NO boosters for long periods of time. A lot of NO boosters are sold with 
like an oral test strip that you put in your mouth and it turns pink or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those aren't actually testing for NO. They're testing for, uh, are, do you have bacteria in your mouth that convert um, the, nitrate, the nitrites into nitrates? That's all that they're testing for. And then they're kind of making a logical leap of if you have more nitrates in your mouth, you get more nitric oxide in your blood. Yeah, that's a definite so. leap right there. That's that's interesting. Because that's where I was thinking, like, I take this beetroot juice, is it like actually helping, right? Or is it just make it, it's a placebo effect, you know? I think it's going to help in some capacity, but is it really going to help me from a performance standpoint right after I take it, you know? Yeah, I mean, there there is evidence showing that beetroot is effective for enhancing certain, like, physical qualities. Um the precise mechanisms that it's working on though are not entirely clear though so a lot of these things that we take that we know work we don't really know why a lot of these things work and that's kind of the funny thing about uh drugs in general there are a lot of even pharmaceutical drugs that work great for certain disease conditions and nobody has any clue what they do so supplementation is always a funny thing like that because it's a combination of what is the drug doing? What is the individual person's physiology doing? Because one supplement may be uh, perfect for you and it might do nothing for me. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's, a, it's all dose dependent. I understand that. Uh, nasal breathing, right? Can you talk a bit about how nasal breathing may affect nitric oxide from a, from a I guess, from a benefit standpoint? And does it increase nitric oxide if you nasal breathe only? Yes. Yeah, so one of the interesting things about nasal breathing is one of the purported benefits of it is that it increases nitric oxide. But this is where uh, we're trying to grapple with this as well is the terminology that we use. So we've been using this term active nitric oxide because we colloquially, we say the word nitric oxide, but there's actually a thousand forms of nitric oxide in our body and all of them have different effects. So it's actually kind of a dirty term in that, like, well, which one do you mean? Ah, uh, okay, um, okay. So nasal breathing specifically increases nitric oxide in the nasal passageways. So that's great. It dilates the airways and it allows for more airflow. But that nitric oxide is not going to end up in the blood and in the systemic circulation. So that will, it will only allow for more airflow in the nasal passageways it will not increase blood flow or oxygen delivery to tissues. That mm. specific form of nitric oxide that controls blood flow in the micro vessels of tissues is released from the red blood cells. Gotcha. So taking it back to the limitation standpoint, and I'm going back to the nasal breathing because I, I, I harp on that a lot just from a parasympathetic standpoint, right? If somebody has a respiratory limitation, is that something that you would utilize to get them to understand and give them a protocol to nasal breathe like how we do um like crocodile breathing too as well something like that yeah i think one of the great things about nasal breathing for those respiratory limited athletes is that nasal breathing is reflexively linked to diaphragmatic breathing mm -hmm. so one of the things that you see is a lot of respiratory limited athletes what do they do when they get fatigued you see every time they take a breath their traps go up to their ears and you're like yeah, that's why you're not getting enough air. You're breathing with your chest and your traps. And the reason why they do that is that uh, oftentimes they're stuck in a slightly thoracic extended position. And the only way for them to create vertical space for the diaphragm to expand when they breathe in is to pull their clavicles upwards and create that space. 
So when you teach them to nasal breathe, you teach them to breathe diaphragmatically. And then in time, when they're doing like an all out effort, most people are going to want to breathe through their nose and their mouth simultaneously to get as much airflow as possible. But at least they'll have those patterns inbuilt that they could do it diaphragmatically and breathe with good mechanics and get sufficient ventilation. This podcast is brought to you by Vivo Barefoot. Now check out VivoBarefoot.com. That's the minimalistic shoe that I've been rocking on all my videos. If you've been watching my Instagram and YouTube, those are the shoes that I've been wearing to help my foot gain full foot functionality, strengthen up the intrinsic muscles of the feet to allow myself to perform better and then also reduce the risk of injury. Now I personally like the Geo Racer Knit and the Primus Light 3. Check them out. Go to VivoBarefoot.com and get the discount code DERU15 to get 15% off your final purchase. All right, now let's get on to the podcast. I've always I've always harped on diaphragmatic breathing, just in general, like one, for bracing technique, right, when you're lifting a heavy load, and then two, just to bring their body back down to a parasympathetic state, uh, especially like in between rounds, things of that nature. But is there a time that it's appropriate to breathe through the mouth? Yeah, I think so. So this is where I really think of breathing as a tool. So yeah, breathing, uh, nasal breathing and diaphragmatic breathing is great for getting someone back down to a parasympathetic state. But what about when you're going to go and try and pull a max effort deadlift or you're getting really amped up and you want to punch a guy in the face in the ring? If you take these deep breaths through your mouth and even breathe into your chest a little bit, create this inflation posture you're going to activate the sympathetic nervous system. So one of the things that you'll notice is before like a weightlifter will go to do a one rep max snatch or a powerlifter goes to do a heavy back squat. What do people do? A lot of times they take two or three really deep breaths in and they don't fully exhale. They're ramping up their sympathetic nervous system. So I think knowing how to breathe in different ways to manipulate the nervous system for a specific task is it's a great skill to have. That's perfect, man. Cause yeah, like that's, that's something that if you ever done a powerlifting meet or a weightlifting meet, whatever, like the level of anxiety that goes into it, especially if you're like on your third attempt and you're there and your heart's already beating, right. And you're getting there. And, and the goal is to like, kind of match your physiology with the psychology of, yo, I'm going to, I'm going to smash this shit, you know? And so like, yeah, ramping up the body, ramping up the nervous system is important you can't be asleep, you know, or, or you're probably going to get smashed, you know? So that makes a lot of sense. Um, what I will say is that with fighters, however, the goal is to like maintain like a solid level of control, right? Even when it shouldn't be like, even when people are like, man, aren't you like, aren't you like ready to attack? And like, you want to have that steady level of like, I can attack, but I need to have control and you need to have a controlled aggression in a sense. So having that fine balance does come into play. And it's just interesting that, you know, we have this, this correlation between you have your respiratory limited individuals and then you have, you know, the, the people that have the ability to, you know, get active nitric oxide now, but if they can't deliver oxygen or if they don't, they have shit cardiac output, well, now we're missing a piece of the pie, right? So we need to make sure that there's no gaps in the system. That's yeah. not just with skills training, but now we know it's with your actual physiology, correct? Yeah, and that's exactly how I think about it. When we're thinking about these limiters and energetics, we're really just trying to build the system up. 
Mm-hmm. But I mean, you could be the fittest individual and it doesn't mean you're going to be any good at your sport. So True. I think like a necessary, but sufficient, like having your physiology built gets you through the front door, but you still need to have all of the other competencies. And one of the things that you mentioned is, yeah, these fighters, they're in, I can't imagine anything more stressful than being in an octagon with millions of people watching me and someone's trying to take me out. But a lot of times you do see these guys are so relaxed and that's something that uh, really struck me 15 years ago. I was at a race, so I used to run 800 meters and I was at a big event. Um, I was pretty young at this point. I was in high school, but it was a race at Madison Square Garden and there's professional runners there too. So I just finished my race and I was on the floor. So really close to these guys on the track. And there were only 200 meter runners there. So like big jack dudes really fast. And when they sprinted by us, one of the things that I noticed is they could not have looked any sleepier and calmer. Like they're running full speed and you just see their faces and they basically look to sleep. You see their like cheeks bouncing up and down. I'm like, I can't imagine how they're running so fast with so much power, but simultaneously they're relaxed enough that you could just see like everything so fluid and that's where you think that most people think when you want to run fast or hit harder you need to like bear down harder and try and that's actually counterintuitive you're stopping yourself the fastest sprinters are like basically like kittens like they're so uh to relax they're relaxed relax yeah yeah and yeah. i could imagine it's probably somewhere fighting if you want to hit someone really hard you can't be incredibly tense just gotta be super fluent man like you gotta be relaxed the, until the moment of impact you know it's having that ability to contract relax as fast as possible you know with with, with sprinters yeah like the, the fastest sprinters they don't look like they're doing anything if you just put a if you put a screen on their face it looks like they're not even moving you know in a sense right but yeah, that, that's, that makes a lot of sense when it comes down to it. It's the same thing with, with a lot of my, uh, my spec ops guys and my military guys, like the sharpshooters, man. The, you know, those guys are, are just pinpoint accurate and there's so much on the line, obviously, right? And they're so calm, so calm. Yeah. And, you know, it's another thing I want to do. I want to run some tests with some of my, uh, my active Navy SEALs and, and some, of the, some, of the, some of the guys that we have coming um, that are veterans. I want to see how they do with it because you have there's a large amount of stress that's built up over there right they come back and there's a thing called operator syndrome where their stress has been so elevated or so high and elevated for so long that they don't know how to cope in in actual yeah. society man like and it's and it's sad and i want to see the maybe the correlation between high cortisol and maybe that that active no you know, and where their limiters yeah. may lie. That could be something that could be fun and beneficial just to see and also help people too is what help these guys from a, from a physiological standpoint. Yeah, that'd be super interesting to look into. And one of the things that I'm thinking as you're talking about these guys that can't relax in the contract relax cycle is one of the things that I've started to see, at least with uh, myself, I need to get more people's data is because we're measuring things like muscle oxygenation at such fast speeds, we could actually see these contraction relaxation cycles. And one of the things that I've seen for myself, I've done all sorts of bike testing in the recent months, just wearing this device, playing around with it. When I start to get really fatigued, what you see is that my relaxation cycles just get slower and slower. So if I'm 
biking or I'm doing anything at high effort, you see my ability to relax the muscle and let blood back in and let oxygen delivery return starts to slow down, get impaired. So I think that would be something interesting to look into with fighters is if they're essentially trying to punch at a maximal effort over and over again, what starts happening when they fatigue? Are they able to relax as quickly and draw back? Are they starting to get essentially impair their own blood flow because they're trying harder and harder? So I think there's a lot of neat things like that that we could dig into. Yeah, that happens a lot in grappling. I would say that happens more so in grappling than anything. You know, especially like the the guys that are going into jujitsu and they're new and they're, they haven't developed that technical efficiency and it's just the overall flow. And on top of that, you know, it's it's anxiety. So like they're going to yeah. go against a black belt and they're a white belt and they're just like tense as, you know, tense as fuck. And they die out between, you know, the second round of a, of a three round or five round, you know, practice or drilling. And you got you have problems there where the guys can't even finish a, a damn class. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's, it's 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 mainly to help understand and, and get skill acquisition, but guys got to finish a class, man, and, and they're paying the yeah. money to do it. So that could help on those like, those sections. Yeah, you always hear with like BJJ, like uh, someone they might not be strong or even that fit, but if they have really great technique, they could beat people that are much stronger and uh, much more enduring. How much of that is just like newer people? They might be super fit but they just don't know how to relax. So they're just burning themselves out and getting beaten versus technique could really overpower someone that is so much stronger. It's definitely both. It's definitely both because guys that are equally technical and have strength and, and fit and they're fit, they'll murder guys that are just technical and don't have any strength. Yeah. You know, like I'll go in there and I have technique and experience enough to like know when I need to strain or not even strain, but know when I need to contract and know yeah. when I need to like save myself and get in good positions and hold those positions in order for me to be, okay, I'm good here. Like I don't have to strain. I don't have to worry about anything. And I think it's more anxiety driven of like, oh, I'm, I'm caught, I'm caught. You know, they don't know that they're getting set up for three steps ahead because you're rolling with a second degree black belt and he just setting you up on a chess match. They think yeah. everything is like, oh, I got swept or, you know, so there's a lot of that. Um, but, yeah, I see it a lot with guys that are coming in, like CrossFitters that are super fit, but, you know, they never really trained. So yeah. they get gassed within the first minute or two. But then you look at that on the flip side, and then you get fighters, they go and do a CrossFit wad or, you know, they do a Metcon, and, you know, they, they may be able to spar 12 rounds, but they go in there and they get, you know, get trashed because – they're just not used to the stimulus. So yeah. it, is, it is dependent upon, you know, that specific adaptation, I guess. Because a lot of these guys have been sparring their whole entire, entire life, especially boxers. So they can come yeah. off the couch and spar 12 rounds. But if you put them on a prowler sprint, well, they're dead after two sprints. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it, it is, you know, specific adaptations, I believe. Yeah, it makes sense. Yep. All right. So one more time. Let them know where they can find the device and, and all the things that you have going on, also your social media so everybody can follow you and get all of the information and education that I've gotten over the years. Yeah, totally. So easiest place to find the device is uh, Nox.com. So again, N-N-O-X-X. It's like nitric oxide oxygen. Uh, that's a website. You could find us at uh, Nox Inc. So N-N-O-X-X underscore I-N-C on every social media platform. 
and you can find me just look up my name anywhere i'm the only evan pycon in the world so it's pretty easy to find me very true very true all right brother i appreciate it you guys check this man out make sure you're learning something i hope you took notes and i'll see you again next time